Well, good morning 2.0. Thanksgiving 2.0. I'm all right if we just have that holiday once a week indefinitely. The 39th Psalm in the Word of God. The 39th Psalm. You know, it's pretty obvious that Psalm 39 invites us to do something. Psalm 39 invites us to think about life and its brevity. When we speak of the brevity of life, what we mean is that life is short. Life is brief. And those of you who have lived long lives, maybe you've got a little bit of gray in your hair. You've seen several decades come and go. Many of you can testify that it seems like yesterday uh, you were young and the world was a lot different place than it is today. And in this, we see that life is very brief. The fascinating thing about our culture and the world in which we live is that it does everything it can to make us or to encourage us to not think about life and its brevity. The last thing our great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil want us to do is to think about how short our lives really are compared to eternity. If you notice what is one of the great theme verses of Psalm 39, it's found in the fourth verse. And David says he makes three very distinct marks concerning the brevity of life. In verse 4, he said, O Lord, make me know my end. Then he said, and what is the measure of my days? And thirdly, he said, let me know how fleeting I am. Usually, when you find someone that is deeply pondering these things, the brevity, the briefness, the shortness of life, you'll find someone that God is beginning to work in and through. But we live in an entertainment culture. According to the website Statista.com, very fascinating website, by the way, encourage you to check it out. According to Statista.com, the average American spends three hours and 58 minutes each day watching television. And believe it or not, that number is down somewhat from just a few years ago. Americans apparently are watching less television than they were. I think the internet and access to the web has changed uh, that statistic quite a bit. The word amuse is actually taken. It's two words. It's a compound word. The prefix ah means without. And the word muse means to think. So very often when we amuse ourselves, we're choosing to not think. And very often, instead of not thinking, we choose entertainment or to be entertained in place of thinking, instead of thinking. Now listen, it's this not thinking about God and our eternal welfare which causes people to drift through life and eventually walk through the dark doors of death into a godless eternity. 
You understand, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, if the devil, the world, the flesh can keep you from thinking about the eternal things, about spiritual things, then our great enemies can keep us dwelling in darkness and ultimately heading into a godless eternity. What is so profound about Psalm 39 is that Psalm 39 challenges our thoughtless culture, which enamors itself with amusements and entertainment by calling the people of God to ponder the brevity of life in order that we may apply ourselves to the knowledge and wisdom of God. It makes perfect sense that Psalm 39 would follow after Psalm 38. Because it's Psalm 38 where David is uh, lamenting, for lack of a better term, over an extended bout with a serious disease and illness. And it's very often in the times of great sickness, in the times of poor health, that we are confronted with how brief and how short life really is. Great illness very often causes us to stop and consider the brevity of life. Let us consider the brevity of life in order that we, like David, can come to understand the true meaning of life. In seeing and lamenting and being heartbroken over the brevity of human life, what's going to happen in Psalm 39 is that David is going to come to understand the true meaning of human life. This great psalm begins with a lament against the emptiness and temporal nature of life down here below on the terra firma. But then it moves to a mighty oracle a word from the Lord concerning the true meaning of life. There's only two points this morning. Roman numeral number one is the brevity of life in verses one through six. Roman numeral number two is the true meaning of life in verses seven through 13. The brevity of life number one in verses one through six of Psalm 39 and the true meaning of life in verses 7 through 13 of this same psalm. I want you to see in the very first verse what the brevity of life does to us. David said, I will not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Then look at verse 2. He said, I was mute and silent. He said, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. When we begin to think and ponder how short life really is, the brevity of our life, it can leave us speechless. It can leave us speechless. David was so concerned with not saying the wrong thing that he chose to not open his mouth at all. Why would David choose to not say the wrong thing? Why would David choose to remain mute? Well, because he says that he was surrounded by the enemies of God, by the faithless, by the wicked. And everything that David says, these people are going to try to use against him. David knew this. 
When we stop to consider the brevity of our lives, it really causes us to carefully weigh our words because we are surrounded by faithless people who will use our words against us and the God whom we serve. I have at least four things that we can learn from King David in this passage. Number one, it is incredibly easy for us to sin with our mouths. I mean, James talks about the tongue and how it's just a little organ, but it does such great damage. There have been wars and conflicts and vast human suffering and death and divorce and destitution and depression that have been instigated, that have been caused by the human tongue. Truly, words are powerful. Words have the ability to build up. The words that we speak also have the ability to destroy. And David says, secondly, sometimes it's better to not say nothing at all than to say the wrong thing. If you feel like that people are going to just use your words against you and your God, it's better for you to keep your mouth shut. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. It's better to just listen than to feel like you've got to say something. It's very often that in the heat of passion and the heat of anger that we say the wrong thing. It's very difficult for us to take back things that we say sometimes. It's far easier if you've offended a Christian brother or sister by saying something because usually they will forgive you or hopefully. I'm reminded of a story of Mr. Charles Spurgeon. He had a family in his church. I guess it was probably the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London, England. And that family gave him fits and said all sorts of mean and hateful things about Pastor Spurgeon. And after a little while, the family came back and told Mr. Spurgeon, the great pastor of that church, they said, Pastor, we are so sorry for the things that we said about you. And Spurgeon, as brilliant as he was, he asked the family to follow him outside. And he holds up a pillow and he takes a knife and he cuts the pillow open and he All the feathers from that pillow blow away in the wind. And Spurgeon said, I forgive you for what you've done, but what you have said, it's like feathers that have blown away in the wind. Sometimes we can never really take back the, the mean and awful and hateful things that we say to people. Sometimes the words are so harmful that we can never get back what we have lost. It's better to say nothing at all than to say the wrong thing. Thirdly, we should not be too quick to share how we feel, even with Christian people. This is one of the great principles that David is outlining. Not everybody's going to understand the thoughts and meditations and musings of your heart. 
Not everyone that you speak to will be able to meet you where you are at the moment. Not everyone that you share your heart with will understand and feel like you feel. And very often it's better to just keep things to ourselves as David does. And fourthly, perhaps most importantly, we need to learn how to bring all of our troubles to the Lord. Because if anybody understands, and if anybody hears, and if anybody knows, it is the Lord himself. You can trust the Lord with the meditations and the musings and the thoughts and the intentions and the feelings of your heart. You can let your hair down in God's presence. And he's not going to retort or retaliate with words and with things and accusations like many others would. Number next, the brevity of life causes us to boil over inside, doesn't it? When we begin to think how brief and how vain and how short our lives are, we begin to bubble inside. Look at the second verse. He said, I held my peace to no avail. And then look, my distress grew worse. When we begin to think of how short life is and all the evil associated with the world and the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, we begin to boil over inside. Like David said, my distress grew worse and worse. When we consider how short our lives are, it tears us up inside. When we consider lost years and misappropriated time, when we consider lost opportunities to serve and love God, it causes us to boil up and boil over in our heart of hearts. Negative pent-up feelings of despair. What makes it far worse is we're in a situation like David is in. Not only do you feel this way inside when you think about how short life is. In Job, he said, a man who is born of a woman, his days are few and full of trouble. Isn't that true? Or you, a human being who was born of a woman, and Job says that your days are few and full of trouble. Few and full is our destiny. <laughs> Of trouble, troubling things, troubling times, troubling family situations, troubled nations, troubled politicians, troubled elections, troubled churches. And we begin to boil up, we, begin all, we get all tore up inside. And what's the worst thing of all is you feel like if you say anything about it, people will misconstrue what you say and use it against you. And other people who say that they're Christians, they won't understand at all. And these feelings, the brevity of life, the vanity and emptiness of life, cause us to boil over inside like David did. Letter C, the brevity of life forces us to learn hard lessons about ourselves. Look at what David said. Verse 3. He said, My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Look, listen to what's happening to him. 
The more he thinks about how short life is, the more he looks around him and sees the wicked, the more that he has to keep silent because people will use his words against him and people won't understand what's going on in his heart of hearts, the more angry he becomes. And we learn something about ourselves in this, that it's extremely difficult to control our emotions. Isn't it? We live in such an emotional culture. Everyone's offended or offensive about something. They become offended. They become offensive. You are offensive and you make others offended. One of the great perils that is destroying our Western civilization is the social media epidemic. When you put something out there, it's for the world to see. Years ago, you know, whenever you were upset about politics or religion or both, and people sat around the kitchen table and you had grandma and grandpa giving their opinion about the way they think the world should be run. You had mom and dad talking and everybody going back and forth with each other. Usually those, was, those conversations were contained within four walls around a supper table. Now everyone puts on display just how big of an idiot they really are. I am appalled at the things I see so-called Christian people posting on the internet. Hateful things, ugly things, spiteful things. And it's destroying our culture. It's better for you to not open your mouth at all than to open your mouth and say something that will be used against you and your God. If they're wicked, they're just laying in wait, waiting for you to say something. <laughs> Arguing, fighting, debating. Be quiet. <laughs> like David. I was mute and silent, he said. If your heart and your anger burns within you, don't put that out there for the world to see. Sometimes internalized emotions can be a very good thing. Because when we say something in anger and we say something in spite, it's sinful. It's different if you have one believer with another, maybe there's a phone call or a disagreement, and those disagreements and those discussions are kept behind closed doors, but now everyone wants to make a meme or a gif, and we think we're cute and we're funny, and we're not. It dishonors God. It dishonors God's church. We learn something about ourselves in this passage. Just like David did, it's extremely difficult to control emotions. Keep them pent up. Internalize them. Be like David. 
Because letter D, the brevity of life, compels us to speak, doesn't it? When we think about the prosperity of the wicked and how short life is and how vain and empty life really is, we can't help but speak. But notice to whom David speaks. He said in verse 3b, look, he said, Then I spoke with my tongue. Verse 4, O Lord, the brevity, the briefness, the vanity of life does compel us to speak, but it compels us to speak to God. Take your emotions to God. Take your thoughts to God. Don't post it and publish it and plaster it out there for the whole world to see. If you're angry, if you're upset, go to the Lord. He can handle it. <laughs> yeah, he was in deep thought and meditation, musing, he said. M-U-S-I-N-G. Pondering all these things, and we're supposed to be. It's when you don't ponder these things that you're in big trouble. But what begins to happen, see, the more that we think about it, the more angry we get. And the more angry we get, the more we want to say something to somebody about how we feel and about how we think we're right and they're wrong. And what it does, it causes division and strife. Be very careful with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Parler. Be very, very careful with fighting, debating, arguing. It's dishonorable. If you've got a problem, take it to the Lord. He's got big shoulders. Letter E, the brevity of life is vanity. Look at what he says in 5 and 6. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. It's vain. It's empty. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James 4, 13 through 16. Both James and King Solomon reference Psalm 39. And when they do, they reference it in order to teach that life is short. He said it's a breath. that It's a vapor. The illustration is early in the morning. In the Middle East, as the sun has been down all night, it drops to very, very low temperatures in that arid desert land. And in the early morning of the hours, just like it would here very often, when the sun is just beginning to come up in the dawn, you can see your breath, can't you? 
You can see the hot vapor of your breath, but how long does your breath appear for? Just a fleeting moment. It's here and it's gone. And David says, Solomon and James all say that that's what life is like. It's like a warm breath in the morning that is quickly vaporized in the cool air. May God help us to redeem the time that we have because the days are evil, Paul said. Life is short and the corresponding vanity that accompanies that acknowledgement. Life is empty, vain, apart from the Lord. In, his in the famous William Shakespeare play, Macbeth, the character gives a rather disparaging speech which highlights the vanity and brevity of human existence. Quote, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools. The way to dusty death, out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And boy, isn't that the truth. But, as Dr. Boyce so aptly points out, King David is not the same as King Macbeth. Instead of David being consumed and dejected by humanity's brief, vain, empty existence, David takes his concern to God. And therefore, in David taking his concern to God, he finds the meaning of life. As the great J.J. Stuart Perone expressed it, he said, quote, Make me rightly to know and estimate the shortness and uncertainty of, a, of human life, that so instead of suffering myself to be perplexed with all that I see around me, I may cast myself the more entirely upon thee. When we are faced with the vain, brief existence, the emptiness, the monotony, the wickedness, the evil in the world, it's all by design so that we would cast ourselves into the arms of God. And in this, we see that even the brevity of life is meaningful. Letter F, the brevity of life is meaningful. Look at verse 5. He said, Behold, you have made my days as a few handbreadths. Who is the one that has ordered and ordained the length of our lives? Life may be brief, but it is filled with meaning because it is God who has ordained the length of our days in order that we would cry out to God for meaning of it all. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? If you're, a math, if you're King Macbeth in the Shakespearean play, you become despaired, you become dejected, you become depressed when you look around you, you see the vanity, the emptiness, the wickedness, the evil of life. But what David does is he takes his concerns directly to God and he casts himself into the open arms of his God. And in that, God gives us great meaning and purpose. 
God uses the brevity and vanity of human existence to draw sinners unto himself. A handbreadth, take your fingers and put them together, all four of them like this. This was the shortest distance of measurement, measurement of distance for the Hebrew people. It was your four fingers, a handbreadth was this long. It's the shortest possible designation for measurements. And what David does is that he uses this and he senses the insignificance of his meager and finite existence when compared to the infinitude of God. God is eternal. What is your life? It's like going and laying a toothpick on the Indiana panhandle little walkway down here. That's how much your life is. Have you ever just walked through a cemetery and beheld all the various tombstones and seen the beginning of someone's life and the dash in between the life date, the birth date, and the death date of that human being? What are you doing with your dash? Are you living for God? Are you going to God? Are you fellowshipping with God? Are you learning of God? Does the vanity and the brevity of your little dash that you get this side of eternity, does it cause you to throw and fling yourselves into God's open arms? Give your life to Him. Not just in religion and church attendance, but in relationship and in love. The true meaning of life. In verse 7, the true meaning of life is found in fellowship with God Himself. Look at verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. This is a great turning point of the psalm. The true meaning of life is found in communion and union with God. This is the question of the ages for humanity, isn't it? Oh Lord, for what do I wait? What's the purpose of my life? What do you want to have to do with me? This is the same question that Job answered. This is the same question that Moses asked. What is the purpose of my life? The purpose of our lives is to enjoy God and to love Him forever. This will add eternal significance to your dash. The truth is, is that human beings were originally created by God in the garden to fellowship and enjoy His presence and that our lives have eternal and everlasting significance. Letter B, the true meaning of life is realized in our sin nature. Boy, this is a curveball. You mean to tell me the true meaning of life is when I realize that I am a sinner? Yes. Look at verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. The psalmist moves from complaining about everyone else's sins and shortcomings to repenting of his own. 
And this is the meaning of life. It's found in the knowledge of oneself to be a sinner. St. Augustine says, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And this is the truth. What is the meaning of life? It's to realize that we are sinners in need of a Redeemer. Let her see the true meaning of life is understood in silence before God. Look at verse number 9. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Here's this theme of silence before God. In the first time that David talks about this, verses 1 and 2, it's silence in the presence of his opponents. And now in verse 9, it's silence in the presence of his God. This is in effect what David is saying. Lord, I don't understand everything. I don't understand the purpose of my life. I don't understand why things are happening the way they are all around me. But I'm trusting you in quiet submission. Sometimes faith is quiet. Often it's quiet. Obedience is quiet. If you don't know the right thing to say, then keep your mouth shut. Amen. Our culture is being destroyed because people do not know how to sit silently in the presence of God. He realizes that silence is actually God's will. <laughs> Look at what he says. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. It was God working in him, keeping him from saying things that he should not say. Would be to God that we would not say anything at all than to offend God or someone else wrongly. David has a personal faith in a personal God who David believes is sovereign over his life. David does not have some sort of vain trust and an impersonal force. There's no higher power for David. It's the Most High, the God of Israel, a personal God, a real God. Letter D, the true meaning of life is obtained through God's convicting power. God is at work bringing sinners unto himself. And he's using their own sins against them to do that. Look at verses 9 and 10. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Here's the theme again. What is your life? It's even a vapor, a breath that appears for a little time and vanishes away. Those who live just for the sake of living are ultimately crushed by the meaningless vanity and brevity of human existence. But God brings trials, tribulations, temptations into the life of his children to teach them that life is not all about them. 
God teaches us through fiery trials of faith that we are not to live for ourselves, we're not to live for our families, we're not to live for wealth or prestige or to show everybody how right we are and how wrong they are. We live for God. We live in God. David is effectively in this verse, these verses saying, God brings us to the end of ourselves. See, this is how it works. <clears throat> God brings us to the end of ourselves, and we think that's the end. But it's really not. It's actually the beginning. Because it's at the end of ourselves when God rebukes, when God chastens, when God brings all sorts of calamity and trial and tribulation that we would be brought into a personal relationship with Him that our lives begin. Life eternal, life everlasting is in God. Come to the end of ourselves and think we've lost everything, but we've really gained everything. Aren't you glad that God never leaves you like He found you? God is at work bringing His people closer to Him. And He's using everything in our environments, everything in our lives to do that. Letter E, the true meaning of life is eternal life. God doesn't leave us like He found us because we are created in His image and for His glory. While humanity is strutting about life's temporary stage, like Macbeth says, we do in fact have an eternal value. We are more than creatures of mortality because our Creator is in Himself immortal. The redeemed will live forever with the Lord and the unredeemed will die forever. Think about this. No matter what your destination is, your destiny is forever. It's either forever life or forever death. You may have eternal life or you may have eternal death. Either way, you have eternity. Why does God deal so harshly with humanity? In these verses, God says, David says, because we are sinners. And if God does not execute the law, if God does not convict and rebuke us for our sin, we will never come to Him. There's only one kind of person that can be saved, and that is a sinner. <laughs> Think about this. If you've never realized your sinnerhood, you've never realized how good God is. Because God only saves one kind, and that is sinners. Jesus himself said, I am come to save, the, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. There's only one kind of person who gets saved, and that's the person who gets lost. Before God ever converted you, God convicted you. Aren't you glad? Because if he didn't do that, you would never have come to him at all. 
What God is making of us now through his convicting power has everlasting implications. As Dr. Boyce so aptly notes, quote, You are the one, Lord, who gives meaning to life. Nothing else does because everything else is passing. You alone are eternal and you have made me for lasting fellowship with yourself. I am restless until I find my rest in you. Letter F, the true meaning of life is found in our pilgrimage. The true meaning of life is found in our pilgrimage. You know, if you were looking for the true meaning of life, you probably would not have expected to find it as Psalm 39 delineates it. But this is the way that it is. Life is a pilgrimage. Look at what David said. Verse 12 and 13, Hear my prayer, Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you. Hmm, that's interesting. I am a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David said, I am a sojourner. What do you mean? He's a king. He has an inheritance in Israel. He has a land. What does he mean, I'm a sojourner? Well, when you look around you and you understand how brief and how vain and how wicked and how empty life really is, and you begin to have to internalize those feelings because nobody will understand what you mean, and those that you speak that way to, they will use the words against you, you begin to realize that this world is not your home. You begin to realize that you're just a passing through. You begin to realize like Abraham that you're on a pilgrimage to a city that is yet to come. This word sojourner and guest are designations, they're terms used of those who were non-Jews who were passing through as travelers, foreigners in a strange land. Sojourners in Israel were not permitted to own land and they were not permanent residents of the Hebrew people. Abraham was a pilgrim. He is our example. God told Abraham to enter a foreign territory and God would give him the land of Canaan from the borders of Egypt to the Euphrates River. But listen to this. Abraham himself never inherited the land. Think about this. God says, I'm going to give you a land, but you're not going to get it. Wait a minute. <laughs> Here's the land, but it's really not yours yet. This is quite depressing. And think about it this way. Whenever Abraham's wife Sarah died, they didn't even have a place to bury her. Listen to what Genesis 23 and verse 4. Abraham has all this land promised to him. And his dear wife passes away and he has to buy a piece of land that was his from the Hittites. The Bible said Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites and said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. How sad is this? How dark is this? The father of the Jews 
Abraham, the friend of God, doesn't even have a land to bury his wife, and God had given him the land of Canaan as in his inheritance. In this we see that our home is not in this world, that we are traveling, that we're sojourning, that we're foreigners in a strange land. That not everybody will think like you, even those who call themselves Christians. And that the purpose of the brevity and the vanity of human existence is to draw us to God. So that we would come to know Him. So that we would ask the questions, Lord, for what purpose do I wait like David and Job and Moses? In his commentary, Ralph A. Jacobson summarizes the final thought of the psalm as thus. Listen, he said, quote, For I am a clanless visitor like all my ancestors. I am a clanless visitor. Are you a clanless visitor? Or are you very much at home in this world? Part of the reason why there's so much turmoil and why Christian people are all tore up inside is because they have made this world their home. They are at home in this world. And the Bible says that we are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are strangers in a foreign land. This is a temporary abode. We are waiting for our inheritance, the new Jerusalem, to come down from heaven as John saw it. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Oh my Lord, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Then I get down on my knees and pray. That old spiritual rightly summarizes the message of Psalm 39. When we are confronted with the brevity and vanity of our meager existence in life on earth, we must remember that God is behind the scenes ordering all things for His glorious purposes in Christ. When we feel the isolation and separation, and it's as if we are a clanless stranger like all our ancestors, let us cling ever closer to the God who gives us true meaning in life. Let's bow our heads and hearts. Our Father, we thank You so much for the truth of the pilgrim life. And in the pilgrim life is eternal life and the meaning of the true meaning of life. In our brevity and in our lives that are a mere vapor that appear for a little time and vanish away. In the emptiness and monotony of human existence here below, surrounded by evil and wickedness. Oh God, we are clanless strangers. We are clanless strangers. In Jesus' name, amen.